0: So I come from a family with uh, some pretty cool names. I have an older brother. His name is Jeronimo. Jeronimo. And I got a younger brother, and his name is Valentino. Fabio Valentino Cruz. Fabio Valentino Cruz. And I'm Bernal. Um, I've got two little kids, and um, this is a story about how one of their names came about. So we moved from Guatemala in 1990 to the United States. We came directly to Portland, actually. And uh, we were very lucky. We had an uncle and aunt and cousins. We had a grandmother, rest in peace, and a grandfather who still lives with us. Um, And we came in an airplane and we landed and we were seeking asylum because we left six years before the civil war in Guatemala ended. So it's a little complicated, but we landed here as tourists, just kidding, we can't go back. (laughs) We submit our papers and um, 15 years later, we get a call. So I land when I'm 13 and I'm 28 and I show up at this appointment, this interview, right? My interview lasted five minutes and stamp. That's it? Yep, you can stay. Wow. So, that also meant actually that I could go to grad school and pay like a reasonable amount of money instead of like you know international student rates. So fast forward another 10 years, you're probably figuring out how old I am. Um, 10 years later, I finish a degree in social work from Portland State and uh, yeah. And not so coincidentally, I end up working with unaccompanied children. And yes, I came here with my family, and I had a great deal of support, and my story is not like theirs at all, but there is a connection, and I feel very sort of drawn to the work. And uh, in my spare time, I volunteer a lot also with refugees and immigrants, and so the focus of my whole entire effort professionally is immigrants and refugees and unaccompanied children. But you know, social work is really rewarding um, in many ways. Many, many ways. And it's really exhausting as well. Um, Social problems, I don't know, I might get in trouble, but they kind of just change. They become a different problem. I don't know that we can say they go away. You know, they become a different problem. That's what I think. I think maybe that's what happens if you spend too much time thinking about these problems. 65 million people in the world are displaced right now. That's staggering, right? And the truth is there's enough space for people in the world, but there's not enough friendly communities for them to go to. So it's really dangerous. If you start thinking about this, you end up thinking, does this even have a solution? Or what am I doing? Again, don't think about it too much because then that's what will happen, right? So as social workers, we start thinking, okay, oh, I gotta take care of myself. And the work that I do, actually, is pretty lonely. My colleagues are here, love you guys all, thank you so much for being here. But the truth is, but the truth is, I'm the only person in the state of Oregon that does my job, right? And so when I'm like in my basement, like pulling my hair out or at the table in my house, I feel like, man, it'd be really great if I could just call somebody. And I know I have lots of people here who'd be like, call me, Bruno. but I gotta work, right? So I recall an experience in the School of Social Work and a class that really made a huge impact on me, spirituality and social work. And this class, I thought I should take this class because there's a lot of people out there who rely on their faith a whole lot and they're very religious and I'm not. And I wanna respect that religion and I wanna respect that faith, so how do I talk to them? That's not what the class was about. It didn't teach me that at all. The class was about you're a spiritual being. How do you sustain spiritually so you can keep doing this thing that you're trying to do? And I wasn't so sure I was a spiritual being, but by the end of the class, I was like, I am. And I'm kind of desperately in need of some practice that will make me feel like I can continue to do this. And I thought long and hard about that, and I really took it to heart. This is the class that I think about the most out of all the classes. I still do. So I landed in this place. I think I know. I feel spiritually fulfilled, and I feel like I can keep doing this when I'm surrounded by like-minded people and people who feel like their work is worthwhile, and they're not gonna give up. And so I actively look for folks like that. and Many of them are here in this room. (laughs) And um, at the encouragement of a previous supervisor of mine, I applied to a program, um, has a really fancy name, it's called uh, Global Mental Health, Refugee Trauma and Recovery. And there's also some folks who are in that program currently. That program is put on by Harvard Medical School, and um, it's a two-part program. You go to Italy for two weeks and you hang out for two weeks. Yes, I'll do that. And then the other part is you got to be online and do your homework, which is really interesting, and you learn a great deal. But when I landed in Italy, um, it became really obvious very quickly that a topic a huge topic of it all was healing, which we all need, practitioners need it. Um, Not to mention folks who are experiencing life in refugee camps, Uh, folks who have experienced tremendous violence and are traumatized. So we all need it, healing is this thing we all need. And I'm like, yes, I, I, I buy that. And one of those healing forces is beauty. And they really drive this idea, the healing force of beauty. And it's really evident from the moment you get there. You're kind of, you take this bus or you take this train to the town of Orvieto, and Orvieto sits on this huge rock, very high, and there's this beautiful church, the Duomo. And uh, the town is medieval, and it's got all these secrets and ancient history. Everything is beautiful. Of course, the program itself is beautiful. The food, you have wine with lunch, what? <laughs> you know, cappuccinos in the morning, all you want. And uh, we get to spend time with each other in the evening, and I met beautiful people from all over the place and all kinds of different backgrounds, all very intimidating, actually, you know, the people who are very accomplished. I'm like, I just graduated from social work. And among these people, these beautiful people, I met two priests, and um, one of them was like a priest I would never met before. First of all, he was decked out, designer clothes every day, He also was very handsome, because that's not unusual, right? He had this beard and uh, he had this presence about him and uh, he's from Iraq and he's 33 years old and he has this presence. And I had all these conversations with him and almost every time I spoke with him, I ended up crying. I am a crier, disclaimer. I'm like the crier, the crierest of the criers. (laughs) Thank you. But this was beyond that. I mean, almost every time we talked, I would cry. And I realized, something spiritual is happening. That's why I came here. It's happening. And I was just like, every time he said something, I would gravitate and listen. And then I found other people were doing the same thing. And we all just were like, what's up with the priest? He's this force, you know? (laughs) And um, one thing I can share with you he he told us this story, right? He was, we gather around and he's the priest talking and he says, um, he shared this story. He's the priest of this parish in Mosul, Iraq, which is um, uh, dominated, it's uh, been occupied by ISIS. And so he's a victim. He's, I mean, he's persecuted. Christians are being persecuted in this area. And he's the head of the parish. So he's particularly vulnerable, right? At the end of mass, almost every day, he'd gather some friends and they'd go on a hike and along this side of this cliff, there are these caves that have been used for the same purpose for hundreds of years. And they would go in these caves and they would take wine, lanterns, and Bibles, and they would just study scripture and debate and talk. And I I just wish I could be a fly on the wall and understand Arabic. Um, And so they did this. And by the end of the evening, folks would go back to their communities, but some folks would stay in the caves because somebody had to stand guard. They knew what could happen if, they, if somebody invaded, if somebody found them. And part of his job was sometimes, every now and then, at 3.30 in the morning, he'd drop the Bible and grab an AK-47 and walk on the ridge and wait and just see if anybody was coming to protect his parish. And so I used to get goosebumps. I'm actually getting them right now, but I just imagined this man doing this with so much love for his parish. And that really stuck with me, right? While we were there, this is in 2015, November, 2015, there was an attack in Paris at a club called the Bataclan, and the Eagles of Death Metal were playing there that night, rock and roll band, and there was an explosion, and people died, and people were injured, and it sort of contributed to this already emerging narrative that exists because ISIS ultimately claimed responsibility for that attack. And among our group, there was a couple of French people, and they were very upset. I remember the next morning, one woman who was from Paris was calling home, trying to find out what had happened. And so I was really affected by that, we all were. And I was also affected by the sentiment that just kept coming up. See, my friend, the priest, most people, including me, if I had just met him, I wouldn't know that he's a priest. I mean, the way he looked, the way he spoke, it was Arabic. I don't know if he's ethnically an Arab or not. I would just associate him with that, and I would imagine most people would think he's probably Muslim. So I started thinking about him and what he has to encounter for the rest of his life, where he actually doesn't represent any of those things, but that kind of sticks with him, and it stuck with me for sure. So it was very sad, but I have to acknowledge that it didn't keep us from going out the very last night we were there together. And we all did actually. Um, There was a salsa band of all things playing and I saw him dancing and I saw him drinking and we left together and as we're walking back to our hotels and we're about to go our own way, he says, hey Bernal, when are you leaving? And I say, I leave tomorrow morning. What time? 10 o'clock. Where are you going? I gotta go to Rome to get on the plane to go to Amsterdam to go to Portland. And he's like, so you're going to Rome? Yeah, where are you going? I gotta be at the Vatican. Ooh, cool. Let's take the train together, he says. And I go, I would love that. I want to keep chatting to you. And I'm like, oh, more crying. OK, I would, I would love to do that. Let's do that. Let's get on the train together. And so he says, 10 o'clock by the arch. And I said, OK, I know what you mean. See you there. 10 o'clock next morning, I show up. By the way, this is the first time, the only time it rained the whole time we were in Orvieto. And I show up, and, good morning, good morning, Father. And uh, he says, Bernal we're leaving, Orvieto, Orvieto's crying for us. And I said, ah, I think Orvieto knows we're leaving, I think it's showering from us. (laughs) And he had such a good laugh about that. And then I said, oh, here's a kid's like toy store. Hey father, would you watch my bags while I go in here? I'm gonna go buy something for my son. And he says, yeah, sure. I go in, spend a few minutes, I come back out empty handed. And he says, you find nothing for your son? You find nothing for Agustin? Nothing's, nothing special for him in there? And I said, ah, I have something really special for Agustin, I was finding something, I don't think I told you, my wife is pregnant, we're expecting, and he stopped, and he looked at me, and he says, Bernal, are you, are you having another baby? And I said, yeah, I am, <laughs> he says, are you having another son? And I go, I am. And he goes, Bernal. And then he said this: He says, Your body can function if somebody cuts off your fingers or your whole hand. And if somebody cuts your ear, or if, some, if you lose your eye, if you lose your leg, your body will still function. At some point, your body doesn't work anymore. And that's what's happening to my parish: everybody's leaving. People are being killed, old people are dying, and nobody's having babies. So I pray for all the families in my parish and I pray for all the kids in my parish. And from this day on Bernal, grabs my shoulders and I'm just bawling. (laughs) I will pray pray for your sons and your wife and your family every day. Why are you crying? (laughs) And I said, I'm, I'm so touched. And I really was. And without saying anything he just held me and he gave me this hug and I think it was the best hug I've ever had in my life. And we got on the train and when we got to Rome we had this dude goodbye we're like, catch around. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> I would say goodbye. And I spent the the rest of that day getting to Amsterdam and then I kind of was in this hotel near the airport, nothing. I was too exhausted and just inundated with thoughts, you know, and I just wanted to be alone. So I gave myself like a day and a half of silent meditation to think about all these things I just learned and this experience I just had. And this guy who just showed up in my life and did that to me. And when I got home, after thinking all of this, I greeted my wife and I embraced her and I said... I have so many things to tell you, but I gotta tell you one thing right away. I met this guy, Father Aram Kia. and I think it would be an act of love for us to name our kid Aram. And she said, I love that, when I get to pick a first name. <laughs> and I said, I'm good with that. (laughs) And his name is Joaquin Aram Cruz. He will be two years old soon, at the end of this month. And in the meantime, what I didn't realize, and I never anticipated, is that every time I say his whole name, Joaquin Aram, or if I just see him, I have to ask myself, where is Father Aram Is he at the Vatican? Is he shopping for designer clothes? Is he in that cave praying for my kids next to his AK-47?